Hey folks, this is a recording from a talk I gave at the Center for Conscious Awareness Canada a couple weeks ago. The topic is success and failure. I talk about my non-linear academic path, my journey towards where I am now, and all of the takeaways and some great quotes along the way. So thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy. Hi everybody, great to see you. Thank you so much for coming today. Very, very exciting stuff. So we're going to hop right into it. Today we're talking about success, but also the partner of success, which is failure. And I want to kind of dispel maybe this myth that failure is bad or that it has no place in our lives. So we're talking about this dichotomy today. Dichotomy meaning just to to split into two things, and that is success and failure. So along your path to achieving success, you are very likely going to have to manage failure along the way. We're going to see a lot of different dichotomies throughout the day, or a lot of different interplays between different concepts, but the big one is success versus failure. And they are not fighting with each other, but they're actually working together. We're going to be sprinkling a lot of quotes throughout this presentation as well, and so I want to make sure that if any of those quotes really sinks in for you, that you can maybe just quickly jot those down or take a picture of your screen, you can do that as well. So first quote of the day, if you find a path with no obstacles, it probably doesn't lead anywhere. Frank A. Clark, American lawyer and politician. This is going to come back time and again throughout the day, so I want this to really sink in. Okay, so first things first, I want to give you a bit of a a sense of what my academic path has been like. This is just one of the paths that has been lived by one individual, and we are all individuals ourselves. So as you can see here, this is kind of a non-linear path. Uh, There's a lot of exclamation marks which punctuate different moments in time where I had to make big decisions. So you'll notice first and foremost that there are six different blocks connected here, and there are dotted lines leading in and out of them. The dotted lines at the beginning indicate everything up to the end of high school, at which point I realized in my life that I wanted to become an astrophysics professor. That's where I was at. Astrophysics professor. Now, when it came time to apply to different CEGEPs, which for those of you who are not in Quebec right now, CEGEP is this two-year intermediate between the end of high school and the beginning of university. When I was looking to apply to CEGEP, I consulted my family, telling them that I wanted to be an astrophysics professor and I wanted to pursue this path. My sister turned to me. She said, Jeremy, you're not smart enough for science. And so... I basically took her advice and decided not even to apply into the science stream. Instead, I figured, let me just try the commerce route, which involved business, economics, and all that jazz. So I started the program in commerce, and a couple weeks in, I realized I was not in the right place. Not that I had gone to the wrong building, but just in my life, I realized commerce was not going to be the thing for me. So unfortunately, I had to finish the rest of that semester before I could move on. But in the meantime, I applied to science much to my sister's chagrin, I got in, got to put that in her face, which was a great moment. And then I continued on back onto this path towards astrophysics professorship. So I finished the program in science, applied to physics at McGill University, got into that program. And then a few weeks into physics, I started to have the same feelings I did in commerce, feeling like I wasn't in the right place. And so I had to make a decision. Do I continue in the program, finish something that I started, continue on this path, this this dream that I had set out for myself, or do I make another switch? For fear of hitting this patterned 
behavior of quitting too early, I really struggled with this. But eventually I made the decision to put my enjoyment of life ahead of everything else. And I wasn't enjoying myself in physics. So I tried to do a second semester to prove to myself that it was absolutely not the right decision to stay in. And I decided at the end of that second semester to leave the program. So I left physics. I went into cognitive science. Huge, huge shift from pure physics into the brain sciences. But it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I had a lunch with a friend of mine when I was telling him about my struggles with physics. And he was finishing this program in cognitive science. And he said, Jeremy, go check this out. Check out the courses. It might be up your alley. And it absolutely was. And I'll tell you, if you haven't started university yet, or if you're thinking about changing programs, check out your local cognitive science program because it is absolutely incredible. It involves things like neuroscience, psychology, philosophy, linguistics. I took some courses in anthropology, computer science. It was amazing. It was perfect for somebody like me who doesn't really know what they want in life. Keeps on vacillating back and forth between different options. And so I finished a degree in cognitive science, focusing in psychology. I applied to a master's degree in psychology. And then a few months into my master's degree in psychology, I had the same feeling that I felt twice already. And it was getting annoying, I'll be honest. I, I felt like I wasn't in the right place. I was enjoying certain aspects of the program, but there were other aspects that I really didn't like, like mainly the research, which was a huge component of the program. What I did like, though, was the teaching aspect and the communicating with people every day. I started a podcast during this time, and I was interviewing fellow graduate students on their research. I'm still doing that today, and so that is one amazing thing that came out of this master's degree in psychology that I didn't actually finish. So I withdrew from the program. I got an absolutely horrendous evaluation from my supervisor. It was the nail in the coffin and I left and I applied to a teaching and learning degree at McGill, which is my current program today. I finish in December and then I become a math teacher at the high school level, which is kind of funny because it's similar to my initial dream of becoming an astrophysics professor. It's still in the realm of education, but at a different level and in a different topic. So why am I telling you all of this? I'm telling you all of this because if you are currently on an academic path or a life path that feels nonlinear, where you keep having to quit or leave or make difficult decisions, you're not alone. I, real human being, in the flesh, have experienced something akin to what you are. And even if your path looks nothing like mine, I hope that you can learn a little bit about what I'm going to share today, which is all of the things that I've learned along this highly nonlinear path. So let's hop into it. First main theme of the day is success. So the question is, where does success come from and what does it look like? At this point in the talk, I prompt the audience with a slide that invites them to contribute some of their words. So in the next little portion, I'm going to be reading off some of their contributions. So we've got, what does success look like to you? It looks like financial freedom. It looks like money in big capital letters. It looks like feeling like achieving potential, accomplishments. Something from your drive, finding stability, happiness, peace. It's interesting. We've got this, this kind of capitalistic and then uh, reflective, like balanced dichotomy coming up here as well. Having a purpose and passion that align with my career. So we've got the purpose, passion, stability, happiness, peace side. We've got the money, financial freedom, drive side. We're definitely going to talk about a number of these concepts as we go. So what we're going to look at here is we're going to look at a simplified diagram of success. This is a hyper-simplified diagram. That's somebody at the top, maybe you, maybe me, maybe Michelle Obama. 
I kept the diagram general without a timeline, without labels for decisions at each level of this branching tree. This could be a diagram for a single day, or it could be the diagram for an entire lifetime. And all of the big decisions that you could make that would lead to the best or optimal outcome in your life. So this is a map of one person's path. Uh, some paths are dead ends, others propagate further as you can see. I think the craziest thing about this diagram is that each of those red X's could be a green check mark in somebody else's diagram. And this leads me to one of the things I'm going to repeat throughout today's talk, which is that your success is not my success. So this is a nonlinear academic path that I'm talking to you about. That's my experience. It's not your experience. And this is a diagram of success for one individual that might not even be me. This is really important to understand because you're going to have people throughout your life. If you're into self-help, you're going to read about people telling you that the way that they did things is probably the best way. And I'm not here to tell you that. Your success is not my success. Now, the daunting part of this diagram is the sheer number of paths we can take in a day or in a life. But the beautiful part of this diagram is the sheer number of paths we can take in a day or in a life. And so it's important to frame the situation in a positive light. We have the choice to look at a quote-unquote negative situation positively, and we can do that here. I need to make another point, and that is that the tick mark here, or the tick marks, do not represent single successes. They mark the endpoints of successful paths. So to keep the diagram clean, I haven't put a green check mark at every location before a red X, but if you visualize them, this picture is a lot more positive than it actually looks. And this is, again, leading back to this concept of framing. So each point along this path could equally be marked with the green tick until you meet some kind of dead end or a quote-unquote failure. The most important of the diagram, I think, is actually this first step, towards the left or towards the right. That's before any action is taken. You're in a pure reflection stage, and you're asking yourself, what does success look like? So congratulations, you already started that step a few minutes ago. It's not over yet. The reflection step could take you 30 minutes. It could take you a day, a month, a year. It might even take your entire life. But the beauty is there's always going to be a toggling back and forth between reflection and taking action. And that's what we're going to be getting into in the next couple of slides. So once you get this initial reflection step going, which we've just started, we got to talk about action. So what does that look like? Quote number two. Success is moving in the right direction, not getting 100% on the first try. Karen Gazeth, author and McGill University lecturer in the education department. Okay, so if we're going to talk about action, then let's, let's get in the right direction. Okay, what does action look like? Well, in my own experience, the first steps to success come from deliberate reflection, like I said, leading to realizations about yourself, and then the next steps after that, those are the action-oriented steps. So if you're going to take action in your own life, you're probably going to look like a manager of sorts. You're not managing anybody but yourself, though, which is great. So you're going to be managing things like your stressors, managing your time, managing your emotions, and also managing expectations. When it comes to managing expectations and all of these different kinds of management, I want you to just picture the one time you asked for something and somebody said no to you. Just a small interaction like that can totally throw off your expectation versus reality meter. It happens all the time. This is an example of violation of expectation. The concept of violation of expectation is really important, actually, because it is something that could lead to you becoming upset or angry, but violation of expectation can also make us laugh. 
After spending six years as a stand-up comedian, it's become abundantly obvious that violation of expectation is actually one of the pillars of joke writing. You get the setup of a joke to lead somebody in one direction, and then you deviate from that path, and that can often lead to laughter. So I find it beautiful that the violation of expectation can lead to anguish, but also laughter and joy. And this, again, brings us back to framing. Does the difference between expectations and the reality that befalls us, does that have to be a bad thing? Or could it be a source of joy? Something to think about. So being a manager might seem like a lot to handle. You might be thinking to yourself, I've never been a manager before, and you're putting all this on my plate, basically, all at once. Where do I begin? Well, you can begin by applying a little psychological trick I learned about in my studies in cognitive science called chunking. I'm not sure if anybody here has heard of the concept of chunking, but chunking is something that you already do naturally. If someone tells you their phone number, you take three or four digits and you combine them. So instead of recalling 10 digits, you have three chunks. You've got the area code, you've got the next three digits, and then the four after that. Next time somebody tells you their phone number and you have to remember it, I want you to focus on how you are repeating those numbers in your head. You might notice that you go something like 416-638-4345. And what you're doing there is you're actually chunking linguistically. I'm not going to get into all the details here, but the point is that 10 things become three. 10 numbers become three chunks of information, and we can apply the exact same thing to management. So in our case, instead of having to worry about these four things and many others, we can actually just manage one. We can manage our management. And this might seem like a trick, because it is. When we're managing our management, we get to think about things in a bit more of a global sense. And by that, I mean we get to manage our lifestyle. So we can take a whole bunch of things that are plaguing our mind at once, and we can just narrow our focus into a single one at a time. There's only one chunk in management management. That is lifestyle management. So when it comes to lifestyle management, we got to be proactive. We're trying to figure out, still, how we're going to take action. This is where things get fun. Because as the manager of your lifestyle, you get to pick apart everything that you do. So you start with the big picture, and then you can start laser focusing onto individual aspects of your life. Not sure if you heard of Tim Ferriss. He's got a very popular podcast, and he also pushes this idea of lifestyle management to his logical limit in his extremely popular book called The 4-Hour Workweek. Pretty sensationalist title, if you ask me. Now, I won't get into the details, but he basically urges you, the reader, to audit your life and identify the activities and behaviors that yield the highest return on time investment. So basically, what do you do that makes you the happiest? the wealthiest, and the most fulfilled. A lot of you were talking about this in the Slido. You're looking for money, you're looking for fulfillment, you want to pursue your passion. So if you assess what things you do, what actions you take that maximize these things, you can pare back and get rid of all of the fluff, all of the noise in your life, and just focus your energy on those things that bring happiness, fulfillment, wealth to you. Marie Kondo recommends the same sort of triage, but her approach involves decluttering your home. So she's got, I forget the name of her book, but she talks all about uh, cleaning up your life, getting rid of things that don't spark joy. I believe that's her, that's her line. I, I do like the idea of a decluttered lifestyle. I, I think I do work on that a lot. One way I do this on a daily basis is through note-taking, actually. I've been taking notes regularly since I was 18. You might know the TED Talk slogan, Ideas Worth Sharing. Well, if I have an idea worth sharing or thinking about further, 
then I consider it an idea worth writing down. And I either jot it on a piece of paper or I take a note in my phone. Quick plug, by the way, for Google Keep. I definitely owe my life to Google Keep. It's an app you should download right away. So a great place to begin your triage, whether it's in the mindset of Marie Kondo or of Tim Ferriss or of Jeremy Ellman, is to begin by consulting one of my favorite diagrams from the best-selling book called Flow by a Hungarian author known as Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. I love this diagram. <laughs> Brings joy every time I see it. If you find diagrams, you should definitely keep them close, near and dear. Take a printout, put it in your inside pocket in a jacket, take it out whenever you need. Okay, let's break this down. So we've got this big diagram, and so we're going to try and focus on it in maybe a, another dichotomous way. We'll split it into two pieces. Right here, we've got two axes here. On the bottom, the horizontal axis, we've got the axis that measures your skill level, your ability. And on the left, going vertically up and down, we've got the vertical axis, which indicates the level of challenge that you experience in a moment in time or when you're engaging in a specific activity. You can see the space is split into eight different regions, but I'm going to apply our chunking trick and split it into just two. And of course, you know that I love dichotomies. So we've got this region that is in a black and lit up orange box here. I think that's a trapezoid. We've got the region that's not highlighted. We're gonna focus on the highlighted region. This is the region where we have either a high degree of ability or a high degree of challenge or both. When it comes to taking action in life, when it comes to taking to auditing your life, seeing what it is that you do already, it's important to identify how much time you spend in each of these different regions. What's really important is the name of the book is flow. Flow is this focused and happy state that is at the intersection of a high challenge and also a high ability context. So flow is rare. You should see that it only occupies one eighth of the diagram. So mathematically, that's 12 and a half percent of your time. If you were just a completely statistically random individual, you would spend 12% of your time in flow. Not that much. So flow is rare. You can think of it as more of a goal than as a state of mind that you need to be in all the time. I do think it's possible to have too much of a good thing. And so if you were living your whole life in flow, you'd probably be overwhelmed and, and burn out. But you use this diagram as you perform your self-audit, when you're taking stock of your overall experience of daily life, I just want you to think really, in, in which of these regions do you spend most of your time in a given day? We've got apathy, worry, anxiety, boredom, arousal, relaxation, control, and flow. You might find yourself more on the right, the left, the top, the bottom. What can you do to change or maintain the status quo if that's where you're, if, if you're happy with where you're at in this diagram in your life? What can you do? What kind of action can you take to focus yourself and bring yourself into one of these mental states or one of these states of being? Here's our next quote. We should always be asking ourselves, is this something that is or is not in my control? By Epictetus. Epictetus is a Greek Stoic philosopher born in 50 AD, and even though this is 20,000-year-old wisdom, it still rings true to an extremely large degree. So we're going to talk about control, which is very exciting. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about control. When it comes to control, there are really three different aspects that we can focus on. We probably spend most of our time thinking about this first question and the least amount of time thinking about the last one. We're very often focused on the negative. Where are we lacking control? 
I got cut off in traffic. I got fired from my job. Somebody said something to me and that hurt my feelings. I wanted to make a strawberry smoothie, but the strawberries weren't on sale. I'm a little bit tight this week. So I'm lacking control in a lot of parts of my life. But more importantly are the other two questions, which are when can we regain control and when is it necessary to relinquish it? So understanding where you have control is really key to understanding where you can affect change in your life. And we're still trying to talk about how we can take action. Now, change is easier than you think because you can control what and where and how you do it. Like we're talking about lifestyle management. You can also control the pace of change. Slow and steady, usually a good approach and one that I take very seriously. Last year, I spent four months training to plank for 10 minutes. And I never spent more than 10 minutes on any given day working towards that. And I did achieve that goal. So you don't necessarily need to dedicate your entire life to achieving something every minute of every day, but you can strategically focus your energy and regain control where you can. Now, the truth is there's no one-size-fits-all approach to long-term lifestyle change. I'm not here to give you necessarily as many answers as as many questions where you can begin to ask those to yourself. Because I, I think you actually probably have more answers about what works for you than I do. Lots of people out there swear by their method. Whether you're waking up at 4 a.m., taking a cold shower, going for a run, taking a warm shower, reading for two hours, going to work after that. I mean, that's not a viable schedule for me or probably for most of you out there. So it's useless to try and implement it because somebody else was successful with that approach. Remember, your success is not my success. Okay, what I'd like to do now is introduce you to Newton's three laws of motion. So pulling out from my physics experience. Uh, and we're going to put a bit of a modern self-help twist on these for the purposes of answering the three questions in front of us right now on control. So where are we lacking control? Where can we regain control? And when is it necessary to relinquish it? <sighs> Gives me the shivers every time I read that. Okay, Newton's laws. Newton's first law of motion states that an object at rest will stay at rest until a force acts upon it. Word for word, this is Newton's law. I think Newton lived in like the 1600s. So again, this is old this is old stuff that we're reappropriating here. For those of you who have a bit of physics background, you might recognize that I did change this up a little bit. He does also talk about constant velocity. So an object that is at a constant velocity will stay at a constant velocity until a force acts upon it. What does this mean? This means that whether you are stagnant or whether you're on a consistent path, an unchanging path in a rut, you can wait for an external force to act upon you, or you can be that force. If there's even a single aspect of yourself that you'd like to change, the only way to make lasting difference is for you to be the catalyst for that change. Can't tell you how many times I've tried to get my family members to lose weight or to change the way that they do things, and it never works. It never works. So focus your energy on you because you are the one who's going to change you. So where are you lacking control? Is it in your work? Is it in your relationships, in your body, in your mind? Maybe you're missing that fundamental force. Newton's second law of motion. And I've modified this just a little bit. Newton's second law of motion, this is not on the slide, is F equals MA, which basically just says that force is related to mass and acceleration. But this is not a physics lesson. So I've modified it slightly, building on this idea of force to talk about energy which is force times distance. So the energy is equal to momentum, which relates to mass, you, the physical being that is you, 
multiplied by distance divided by time. I don't want to overwhelm you with the mathematics here, but we're looking at just the relationships here. The energy that you put in to achieving success will be related to a few things. Number one, the momentum that you develop on your journey, and also how far you go. This is the momentum in the distance. It's also inversely proportional to how long it's going to take you to get there. That's the time component. In other words, the more energy you put in, the farther you're going to go, the smoother the ride, and the faster you'll get there. This is building off of a fundamental principle of our universe, discovered and succinctly put by Isaac Newton 400 years ago. So where can you regain control? Well, you can increase your energy input. Are you really giving 100% of the energy you have in a given day towards planking for 10 minutes or towards getting a raise at your job or finding a meaningful relationship or making that cash? Putting in 100% effort or increasing your energy input could mean working harder. It could mean working smarter. Thinking your way through a problem can sometimes be just as energy intensive as physically pushing your way through it. Newton's third law. You might remember this one. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You'll notice here action and reaction are italicized because they are another dichotomy. I'm just going to put it plainly. Human beings, way too reactive. Way too reactive. We need to put more emphasis on action, which again is the theme that keeps coming over and over and over again today. Action is really how we regain control. But we also need to appreciate that we can't control what other people do or say. So it's in the actions and words of others that we must relinquish control. It's in our best interest to do so. And it also relates back to managing expectations. You're going to meet a lot of people in this life. You've met a lot of people already. They're going to do things and have done things that don't align with what your goals are. And that is okay because not everything is in your control. But when you learn to take action as opposed to constantly reacting at this base level, that's where you regain control. It's by relinquishing that you can regain. Okay. I wish I could see your faces so I knew how you're reacting right now. Now that we've spoken about the importance of force and energy, we want to figure out how to channel that energy productively. Our energy is a finite resource, and so we'd best allocate it wisely. Here's our next quote. I told you I was going to give you lots of quotes here. We fail when we stick to something that's not a good fit. Seth Godin, American author and writer of Seth's blog. It's not true that winners never quit. You hear that a lot. In fact, according to an author we're going to talk about in a moment, David Epstein, winners quit fast and often when they detect that a plan is not the best fit. And get this, they don't feel bad about it either. We fail when we stick to something that's not a good fit. So how do we figure out when it's time to quit? Or how do we take the next step in whatever we're doing after we quit? You might get the sense that we're switching now from success to failure, and that's exactly what's happening. So the information on this slide is, is kind of a mix between some of my experience and also some of the stuff I've read from David Epstein in his book called Range. I'd highly recommend it. If you are a student at your university, you might be able to get access to it for free, either as an ebook or as an audiobook. That's how I listen to it at McGill. Okay, quitting. I'm going to say that word again. Quitting. It's scary and it's not always fun. Failure. Also scary. Not always fun. Or is it? Hmm. Is quitting, is failure scary? Well, I actually say no. I don't think quitting or failure are scary. I think they're actually super fun and we're going to talk about why. 
Now, by no means do I want to sensationalize failure. Absolutely not. However, I do recognize, as I've said before, that failure is a necessary component of success. I'm actually going to repeat that. Failure is a necessary component of success. Remember, if your path has no obstacles, it doesn't lead anywhere. Or maybe it does, but everybody's already traveled on that path and they've already arrived at that destination if there are no obstacles. I like to remind myself, actually, that the peak of Mount Everest is covered in garbage. I love that. The peak of Mount Everest is covered in garbage. If there's one thing I want you to take away from my talk today, it's actually that. Something that you have to struggle with so intensely and train for is a journey that brings you ultimately to a giant patch of dead bodies and garbage. Okay, that's the strong imagery part of my talk today. Now, before you quit, there are a few things that I want you to do. Okay, things that I think you should do. I, I feel quite strongly about this. Number one is take your time. There's always time. Okay? It keeps chugging along, but there is a lot of it. If you're in a new field, then you're going to learn a lot of new things. A lot of your university students, and so you're knee-deep in learning right now, or at least I hope so. Weirdly enough, the most effective learning, something I learned from David Epstein, is that the most effective learning sometimes looks like falling behind. For example, if you're an athlete, you might reserve some energy during a long-distance race so that you can have this final push to overtake those burnt-out competitors that you have. I was a rower back in Sejep, and I, re I remember one specific race where it felt like we were behind. They were, all the boats were ahead of us, pretty much, but we had reserved a bit of energy, and we were able to overtake them. I don't remember what place we came in, but we didn't come dead last. It, it seemed like we were falling behind, but it actually meant that we were going to come out ahead in the end. It takes time to find the deep structure of a problem before matching a strategy to it. Something else I learned from David Epstein. Expert problem solvers take their time to find that deep structure. They take their time. And once they do find that deep structure, the approach to a solution becomes clear. I like to think of mathematicians. It takes time to really understand a problem at an extremely complex level. And so if you take your time to understand the problem, the solution that you come up with will probably be better. So this is important, not only on your journey of self-development, but also in school too. Learning is best done slowly if you want to develop lasting knowledge. Have you ever tried to cram for a test? Probably. Did you remember a lot after that test? Probably not. You gotta learn slow, you gotta work slow, even if it means doing poorly at the beginning. So if you're thinking about quitting, thinking that you'll never pass a test, never get a job, just ask yourself, have I given myself ample time to find a solution to my problem? It's number one. Number two, struggle a little or a lot. The harder it is, the more you learn. When you struggle, your brain reacts in a way that it recognizes that what you're doing is probably important because you wouldn't be struggling unless it was worth something. Change doesn't happen overnight, definitely not, but the desire to change does. And I'm hoping that tonight is that night for you. So maybe the next change you want to make to your lifestyle as the manager of it is to dial up that struggle knob a little bit. Introduce some challenge into your day-to-day. -day. Remember, flow is impossible without a high degree of challenge. So if you're struggling, you're being challenged. And if you develop skills along the way to meet that challenge, flow just happens. Number three, before you quit, make mistakes. 
You don't want to quit before you've actually failed a little bit. Not to the point where you're living on the streets, where you have no money to your name, you have no family members who are taking care of you, you have no hope left for life. That is an extreme nobody wants to find themselves in. But you got to make some mistakes along the way. I listened to my sister when she told me I wasn't smart enough for science. It was a mistake. Yes, it slowed me down, but I was able to confidently eliminate commerce from the list of potential academic paths I might find interesting. So mistakes provide incredible feedback as to what's working and what's not. Think about babies. Babies fall over constantly as they learn to walk. Could you imagine if babies just quit trying to learn how to walk because they kept falling down? We'd all spend our adult lives just sitting. So I, I guess not much would change then. Okay, lastly, before you quit, just remember, don't blindly follow your dreams. Okay? Sometimes before you quit, you might actually decide that you don't want to quit. And it's because you are in this blind following of dreams. So following your dreams can be really limiting. Most people won't tell you that. Especially if you have those dreams early in life and you don't consider the individual change that you experience throughout it. For example, I wanted to become an astrophysics professor. I realize now I do not want to be an astrophysics professor. It was a dream at a time, but no longer. I used to do stand-up comedy. I did it for six years. And there were points where I thought, hey, I might want to become a stand-up comedian as a career. And now I realize absolutely not. No way. Okay, that's before you quit. Hi, you quit. Congratulations. Very nice. Now, after you quit, there's really just one thing you got to do. Much simpler after you quit. You got to say yes to things. And you have to see what you learn when you say yes to things. This is one of those beautiful parts of life. See what you learn, where you end up by the end of the year if you start saying yes more often. Being a strategic yes man has actually worked wonders for me over the past decade of my life. It got me to host a variety show in grade 11 when I was in high school. Somebody offered that to me and I thought about saying no. And when I took it, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And it led to me starting to do stand-up comedy a couple of years later. Starting to do stand-up comedy was a great option when a comedian told me that I should just try it out. And I said, sure, why not? I got into rowing because I saw a sign that said, are you interested in rowing? And I thought, eh, that sounds like a lot of effort. But I took the leap of faith and it was some of the best two years of my life in Sejep doing rowing. You don't need to be asked in order to say yes. I know a lot of those examples involve being asked. But you can also create your own opportunities. And the easiest way to do that is to understand where you fit into the larger social sphere. Before we get into what that means and into the power of networking, let's just do one more slide. This time on the topic of failure. Write down the first word that comes to mind when you think of failure. And what does failure look like to you? How does it make you feel? There we go. Losing discomfort. Anybody else? Challenges. Disappointment. Challenges. Interesting. Numbing. Opportunity to improve. Yeah. Anger. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I felt that. It's natural. Off the desired path. Yeah. Disappointing others. Oof. Feelings of expectations. Oh, these are, these are so real. Yes. Let it all out disappointment, shame, confusion. Again, we have this kind of split here between some, some positive outlook answers here, some of, that, some of that positive framing, and then we've also got the classics. Failure makes us feel a lot of different things, and it seems to make us feel more negative than positive. I guess something that I, I, I didn't mention explicitly on the control slide, the Stoic philosophy is actually, it's rooted a lot in this dichotomy of control, understanding that there are things you can control and things that you cannot. 
And one of the things that we can control, as we already spoke about, is action versus reaction. When we react to failure, we could experience disappointment, shame, numbing, confusion, anger, hopelessness, discomfort. But I believe that we do have control over how we experience these things, things like failure and like success as well. So think about it. Do we have to feel this way when we fail? Or can we regain control over how we react to it? Just to pull together a couple different concepts. There's so much, so much to talk about. Okay, thank you so much for all your contributions here. Let's keep the show going. So we were talking about how we fit into the larger social sphere, talking about saying yes to things. One thing that I've learned in the last few weeks listening to an audiobook about uh, classics in philosophy, so many philosophers have come to the same conclusion that what makes humans unique and what the meaning and purpose of our life is, is to connect with people, to be social beings and to learn from each other. One thing I know I need to learn to do more is to ask for help. And so I'm here telling you that I need help with that. And if you need help with that too, hooray, we're together in that. So you need to learn to ask for help, totally. It's, it's one of the best ways to connect is to ask for help, to be vulnerable just a little bit and open yourself up to that. Now, I, I'm going to try and shy away from using the word networking here because networking has kind of developed this very like corporate sort of stigma to it. And it can feel very businessy and transactional. So instead, when I say connecting, you could think of that as networking, but it's more in a broad, deeper sense. When it comes to connecting, there are a few things I want you to think about. Number one, don't reinvent the wheel. So when you're connecting with people, very often is to learn about what they've done. And that's a beautiful thing because you do not need to do something new for the first time. When I started my podcast, I reached out to a friend of mine who had actually inspired me to start the podcast and he helped me figure out how to get things streaming and how to connect with people and all of the fundamentals of starting. There's no reason for me to go about that alone. I knew somebody who had a skill, I connected with them, and I reaped the benefits of admitting that I didn't know something. So figure out who else has achieved what you want to achieve in life. Find them, study them, crowdsource knowledge through books and through talking to people so that you can figure out how to better manage your stress. How do other people manage their stress? It might not work for you, but at least it gives you ideas, and then you get to think about that as you go. There are likely, in this world, so many people, millions of people maybe, who have experienced something similar, if not identical, to your current conundrum. So you got to tap into that global knowledge and lived experience, and just don't reinvent the wheel. We spoke about energy, right? If we want to invest our energy wisely, then we don't want to do things that have already been done that we could tap into. So connecting with people is a great way to tap into that pre-existing knowledge. Number two, keep it organic. When you connect with somebody, if you show genuine interest in others, they will show interest in you. Whenever you connect with somebody new, be authentically you. I don't want to say be yourself, but that's really what I've been saying in a roundabout way. Whoever yourself is, if you're being true to you, be authentic, be genuine, and your connections will most likely, almost always be positive. Number three, embrace rejection. And this brings us back to expectations. So this is probably one of the hardest parts of life, getting rejected. It kind of feels like a form of failure in a sense. And you can think of it that way. I like to think of it not as a failure, but as feedback. When you reframe rejection as feedback, it becomes refreshing. 
not rejection, but refreshing. You begin to seek it out, actually. In, in the last few months, I've done some cold calling to a bunch of event planners to offer a particular service. I have a small business called Gift Rap, where I write and record personalized rap songs for special people on special occasions. And there are so many of these calls that I've made that people either never pick up or they don't return my call or they tell me they're not interested or they tell me they are interested and then they ignore my emails. I'm clearly not their priority. And why should I be? Rejection is a great opportunity to find balance and to develop mindful practices. I'm not the center of anybody's universe. I'm the center of my universe. And so if somebody rejects me, fine, who am I? I'm just a random guy. And if you forget about me in the next 12 months, beautiful. Forget me, remember the things that I said. So we want to find balance when we experience failure. We feel fatigued. We feel dejected. So we can find balance by tapping into our mindfulness. Bring it back. This is a talk brought to you by the CCA. So let's talk about mindfulness a little bit. So our last topic for the day before we wrap up. Let's keep the ball rolling. Okay. One more quote for you. I love this one. Ooh, so exciting. Okay. Someone sitting in the shade today because somebody planted a tree a long time ago. Warren Buffett. The beauty about this quote is that you could be the someone and that somebody, and you can also be the tree. I'll read it again. Someone, that's you, sitting in the shade today because somebody, also you, planted a tree, also you, a long time ago. So plant yourself now so that the future you can look back and say, thanks. All right. Mindfulness. Big word. We hear it a lot. It's a huge buzzword these days. Got to be mindful. I'm going to try and break mindfulness down into three things to focus on. Seems like three is kind of the magic number. It's hard to focus on more than three things at a time. Number one is balance. Balance between having a one-track mind, blindly following your dreams, and also having a scatterbrain and being all over the place and not knowing how to manage what's going on. I was actually talking to a friend last night, and they said they were often overwhelmed by the vast option space of the future. Okay, they didn't say it quite like that. But they were thinking about everything all at once. All the things they could or should change in their life. You could refer to that as analysis paralysis. It's impossible to take action, to take a first step, when there appear to be a thousand paths to take. So practice, through mindfulness, meditation maybe, narrowing your focus down to a couple of things at a time, if this is something that you struggle with. So like I said, meditation, great way to develop that skill. Often in meditation, we try and free our mind of any and all focus points, or when ideas and thoughts come in, we let them bubble away. But it's okay at the beginning to just narrow our focus to just a couple of things. Number two, moderation and self-awareness. Kind of a weird thing to think about moderating, but you definitely should. This is actually a recommendation by John Flavel, a developmental psychologist I was reading about. I came across him in my research on metacognition that has to do with thinking about our own thoughts and something that you've hopefully been doing throughout the talk today and will continue to do later. So hyper self-awareness, John Flavel says, can lead to anxiety and negative mental loops. So self-awareness is a positive thing, absolutely. I think it's beautiful, but it's only positive until it isn't, until it turns us into our own worst enemy. I think I said it before, but I'll say it again. It's possible to have too much of a good thing. 
I think I said that with flow. It's possible to have too much of a good thing. So tap into your self-awareness, but don't let that become a negative downward spiral of anxiety and negative mental loops. You got to pull yourself out. Third and final point on mindfulness, energy release and regeneration. Mindfulness can be used for this. I also like to think of this as a great opportunity to tap into creative outlets. So bring you back to flow. Creative outlets are a huge source of mental tranquility for me. Thing is, Creativity looks different for everyone, and it can also help you achieve flow when you pair it with a skill in a given domain. So my interests are not your interests. My success is not your success. My creativity is not your creativity. But I'll give you a few examples. Are you a good cook? If you're a good cook, if you've got that skill, ramp up that challenge by experimenting a little bit in the kitchen. Find a recipe and bend the rules a little bit. Change the seasoning, the cook time, the temperature. Are you athletic? Change up your workout routine. Look at what other people are doing and maybe try and blend two more exercises together to make a nice superset or do an interesting new compound movement or ask people what they do. Increase that challenge. Increase the likelihood of flow. Are you artistic? Pick up a new medium of self-expression. Why not? I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable with digital design, but I'm terrified of painting. I can play guitar, but percussion would be an interesting and new kind of musical challenge for me. Whatever it is, do something. Started off this talk talking about how to take action. It comes after reflection, and there's a back and forth between action and reflection, always in concert. Success and failure, always in concert. Action, reflection. Action, reaction. Energy, release, and regeneration. It's all about the dichotomies and balancing the two sides of every single coin you flip in the air. So whatever it is, do something, do anything. Take your time. Struggle a little bit make mistakes, and come back to me in 12 months. We'll see where you're at. Here's a final quote we'll look at today, and then a quick revision of the main takeaways to just drill those ideas back in. The biggest risk of all is not taking one. Melody Hobson, Starbucks chairwoman, ex-chairwoman of DreamWorks, and for those who are curious, the wife of George Lucas. Okay, big takeaways here. This is it, folks. We're calling it a day. I think I've said this probably 12 times. My success is not your success. That's number one. Number two, if there are no obstacles, then the path is probably not worthwhile or interesting. Obstacles lead to things like struggling and failure and quitting, which are beautiful because they provide meaningful feedback. Number three, reflect, take action, and repeat. It's a never-ending cycle, so learn to love that cycle. Number four, Newton's laws of devotion, not motion, but devotion. Take that force, that natural force within you, take the energy you've got and put it into something that will maximize your experience of your life. And don't forget about the triad of control. It's not all about controlling everything. It's about understanding where you lack the control, where you can regain the control, and most importantly, where you should relinquish it. Number five, find fulfillment in flow and failure. Develop some skills over time, take your time, find a challenge, marry them together, and experience flow and fail along the way. Do it. Number six, the final point, ask for help. I say this out loud so I can hear it because I, I know I need to hear it too. Ask for help and reciprocate. You ask and you give and you become part of the larger social sphere. You integrate yourself into your family, your friend network, the larger city you live in, the school you're at, the globe, help reciprocate. It all begins now. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Abstract Coal in the Future of Science. Always a pleasure creating and discussing and having you join me. If you like this episode or if you've got problems with the episode, regardless anything in between, I want to hear from you. You can shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. You can touch base on Instagram at abstractcast. And if you've got an Apple ID, a review would be so appreciated. If you've got ideas for future episodes or are a graduate student yourself, you should definitely hit up my inbox. Now it's 2022, so we're not releasing weekly episodes anymore, but we still will be releasing content this year, so keep tuning back in and have a great rest of the day.